Amen. Welcome to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my guest is Frank Bender, and I'm not really sure how to bring Frank in. Frank, I mean, think about this. Welcome to the show. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. No problem. Frank, I, I, I've been thinking about this, and I'm not really sure of the exact title of, of what you used to do. Can you give an exact title of what you used to do? Then we can move on from that point. I'm not sure myself, but <laughs> <laughs> when I uh, I do, uh, I, I did a lot of things in my life. I uh, did fine art. I did uh, forensic art, and today we'll be talking uh, mostly as we discuss the forensic art. Well, a little bit of everything, yes. but uh, when I do the identification work uh, from skull to face, it's facial reconstruction, okay. and then I also age fugitives in drawing and three dimension. Uh, I guess just forensic art that pretty much covers it all okay. for that end of it. Okay, perfect. Cause I, I looked around today, and when I was putting the show together, I'm going, is there really a, an answer to that question? But I think you gave the answer. Frank, let's start off with um, you know what you do is a gift as far as being able to reconstruct uh, people's faces, and you're able to help people. You're able to identify people who are missing, uh, people who have uh, who've gone on the lamb, so to speak. And I guess let's. I want to kind of go back a little bit further there. How did you start off doing all this when you were in the Navy? I know you took pictures. You were a reconnaissance photographer over Cuba, correct? Yes, I did some of that. Uh, prior to that, I was on a destroyer escort radar picket. And uh, I always had an interest in photography, even before I went in the Navy. And that's why they had me do this special reconnaissance work um, while I w- uh, was uh, down in, uh, well, they called it the Bay of Pigs in Cuba at yes. the time. Okay, and then you were, you, very few things are known about that. They're starting to come out, and you and I were talking about it last week, the, the reconnaissance right. flights over Cuba. You were involved in taking the pictures of that. You were also shot at, correct? Yeah, our plane was uh, hit uh, in the wing, the outer part of the wing. And it was funny because I was an engine in third class, mm-hmm. but I was also good at photography. And uh, for my last years of reserve training, they moved me. Uh, from the ship to and Willow Grove Naval Air Station, Aerial Wingstaff 93L, and I uh, was down in uh, Jacksonville, Florida for my two-week reserve training, and the captain of the plane knew that I was uh, good at photography and wanted me to fly this mission. So when I got on the plane, the other members of the crew were saying, well, what are you doing on here? You're an engine in third class. I said, talk to the captain. <laughs> and I went to, they said, well, we go to our seats for takeoff. I said, where's the seat? I'm looking for, like, I'm used to, you know, regular aircraft. No, not really that bad. But uh, it wasn't a typical seat. It was you pulled the aluminum plate up on the floor and sat on that. And uh, <laughs> 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 oh, that was funny. And then... Um, uh, halfway through the mission, uh, well, three quarters of the way, we got shot and we're over water and we're told that we had to go to our jump stations. And I said, oh, where do you go for your jump station? And the guy next to me says, you got to be kidding. You don't know anything about this, do you? I said, no, I don't. So he said, well, lots of luck, pal. So we <laughs> nice put a parachute on it, went to my jump station, and uh, luckily the captain managed to take the plane to Roosevelt Roads in, in Puerto Rico and landed safely. 
And you know, at that time, we were young and you feel indestructible, and all I cared about was, wow, we're only in Puerto Rico. That's great. Now I can go drinking in Puerto Rico and have a good good time for a day or two, you know. So uh, the... Uh, but being shot at really didn't didn't mean too much uh, when I was considering the good time I was going to have in Puerto Rico. That's great because that, that's not really as we you know, as we were talking last week. That's not really well known uh, part of the Bay of Pigs uh, no. flying those those reconnaissance missions. Now I've seen some some movies on it where it's been depicted, but not to the point where it's really been told. And I guess now the information's starting to come out after all these years, Freedom of Information Act and so forth. Right, they had a special drama documentary uh, on just that, and apparently they were told at the time to say that the planes were hit by birds and all, because we're so close to a brink of war yeah. that uh, they didn't want it out that we were a actually took some uh, combat uh, firing on, and uh, I can understand why. I mean, you know, I didn't want a third world war either, and I totally understood uh why that was necessary. Well, I, I think I told you, I interviewed uh, uh, Nikita Khrushchev's son uh, back, oh, I don't know, back about six, seven, eight months ago. And I asked him, Sergei's his name, he's a professor up in Brown University. And I point blank asked him, what, what was your father thinking? And basically he told me his father was just testing it. He was never going to cross the line. He was never pushing it. He just wanted to see what was going to happen because what he had done, what Kennedy had failed during, uh, 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 I can't think of it right now, different, a uh, few other things that set him up. He thought he was weak. So, you know, he wasn't, wasn't about to push the envelope there. Right. Uh, yeah, I kind of felt that it wasn't really going to come to a third world war because, uh, you know, Russia needed needed our wheat. They needed, uh, you know, I mean, let's face it, a nuclear war is mm. going to uh, make it so that the wheat and the grain and everything here is uneatable. You know, I mean, it's they, I'm sure, took, were taking that under consideration. Completely a uh, no-win situation. Well, let's you know, let's flash forward now a little bit. You come out of the Navy. Uh, what do you do when you come out of the Navy? What's your job? Well, when I got out of the Navy, Curtis Publishing Company that hired me to work in their photography department as a messenger, and I also did some black and white printing prior to going in the Navy, hired me back. And back then, because the draft was on, uh, they had to hire you back. It was the law. Oh. In fact, while I was on the ship, they even sent me Saturday Evening Post magazine for free. It was great. Interesting. Interesting. Well, from all that, how do you get involved from that point in, in forensic reconstruction? I mean, it's so far uh, south from what you've been doing. Now, I know you're an artist and you've got an you know, artistic way about you, but how do you get into this? How do you start you know, looking at, 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 at sculpture and, and helping people by reconstructing things? Well, I was taking some courses at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, which is the oldest art school in the United States, under the Veterans Administration Program, where you were guaranteed uh, schooling. And I always wanted to go to the academy, and now is my opportunity to go there for free. In fact, I was paid to go there, which even made it better because I had all my art supplies and everything taken care of, and I was married, and you know, I, I couldn't be taking money out of the bank account to go to school, so this worked out great. But they did not have an anatomy course. They had everything but an anatomy course for evening students. I was going five nights a week. 
So a friend of mine, Bart Zendel, who worked at the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office and fingerprinted the bodies there, said, Frank, why don't you come down to the morgue and watch some autopsies? That should help you learn a little something about anatomy. And I said, sure, that would be fine. So I go down to the morgue and um, watch these autopsies, and they're explaining to me about the different homicides. You know, one body was cut in half by a train. It was a suicide. There was all these different, uh, you know, conditions that the people came in under. And uh, they brought out this one woman who they didn't know what she looked like and her name. They didn't know anything about her. And, uh, Bart said, uh, we don't know anything about her. We don't even know what she looks like. And I just set out a conversation. Well, I know what she looks like. Well, a doctor standing next to me introduced himself to me, and he said, my name is Dr. Halbert Schillinger. I'm the duty coroner, <clears throat> and do you know anything about forensics? I said, I don't even know what the word means. You know, because <laughs> it's a time. Yeah, okay. wasn't around to make us familiar with the word. And uh, he said, well, it's my case. Would you mind helping me on somehow I believe that you do know what she looks like and could help me help me. And I said, sure. So I put a face to the unknown woman and five months later she was identified through what I had done through the uh, alertness of a New Jersey state policeman. And they had an idea who may have murdered her when she was identified and they backtracked because once they get an identification they can pretty much backtrack to find out you know so much about the person and it was uh, John Martini well it took 20 years to get a conviction on Martini in this murder and the Philadelphia Police Department uh, never ever gave up and uh 20 years later, they got a conviction, and John Martini wound up in jail for the rest of his life, where he uh, died in jail not too long ago. He was a hitman for various uh, crime families. Interesting. Interesting. Now, Frank, how do you do it? I mean, obviously it's a gift, but how do you see what you're looking for? I mean, when I was at your studio yesterday, I'm looking around. I, I just see heads, faces. I'm, I'm, right. tr I'm trying to, to, to imagine how I would, I mean, I don't have that kind of imagination to, you know, to make a paper uh, doll or anything. I just don't have that gift. But, but how do you do it? Did, did you always know you had it or was it, you know, or did it just come into play when you went to the morgue and saw what was happening? When I went to the morgue and saw what was happening, I just knew that I knew what she looked like. Uh, don't ask me how, I just knew. And... Basically, that's the way I uh, I've lived my whole life. There's a harmony to nature, follows through everything, art, dance, and uh, photography, painting, whatever. And you just got to get on that uh, that wave and ride it in, and and uh, it'll take you to where you need to go. My father used to tell me when we were driving on the turnpike, getting back of a trailer truck will help pull you along. Well, it's the same thing with nature. Hmm. Believe in it, and it'll give you the right answer. Animals live by it. We need to do that a little bit more. And it's a combination of art and science and uh, like a bouillabaisse base of uh, life's experience, observing people and everything else helps to pull it all together. Now, when you, you envision 
what you're going to reconstruct. Is that gift go other places? I mean, can you look at people, everyday people, and, and, and assess them and go, okay, that person's going to look this way in 15, 20 years? I mean, are you able to look at you know living people and, and, and come to that conclusion or come to that guess? Yes, I can pretty much look at people and feel how they're going to look in 15 to 20 years, but that's work. So I really don't do it unless uh, it's a, a job, you know. I'm a people person. I love looking at people. I was a commercial photographer. I would photograph people. I was an artist to draw, paint people. Uh, I, uh, I've always been fascinated uh, by the form and the differences in form. Interesting. And definitely, definitely a gift. Frank, we're going to take, we're going to run into a uh, commercial right now. We'll be back in a few moments. We're talking to Frank Bender. For lack of a better way of saying it, he's a reconstructive forensics expert. And we'll be back in a few moments. I'm Perry Ritchie from Advent Nutrition, and I'm inviting you to listen to WCHE's premier nutritional information show, Mission Nutrition. Tune in every Tuesday afternoon from 4 to 4.30. I'll be discussing the most current research findings and therapies available in all areas of health, from how to lose weight and keep it off to managing a host of other medical conditions, from insulin resistance to heart disease, fibromyalgia to osteoporosis, autoimmune disease, menopause, cancer support, and more. So please join me. I'll introduce you to special guests, great programs, and an open line every week so you can call in and ask questions to get and keep you feeling fit, happy, and healthy. So tune in every Tuesday from 4 to 4.30, right here on 1520 AM WCHE Westchester. Remember, your health is your responsibility, so let's take charge of it together. Matt Lombardo, passionate, opinionated, and the voice of the Philadelphia fans. The expectations have never, ever been higher for this franchise, and you can make the argument that there haven't been this high of expectations or these high of hopes for any team in Philadelphia sports history in the last 25 years and maybe ever. In my mind, this is a World Series or bust season. Catch the Matt Lombardo Show weekdays at 2 on 1520 WCHE. For a lighthearted look at issues affecting seniors, the baby boom generation, and their families, including finances, care, the law, and decisions the over 50 generation face every day, tune in to WCHE's 50 Plus Planning Ahead. The show is co-hosted by elder law attorney Janet Colleton and Phil McFadden, co-owner of Homestead Senior Services. 50 Plus Planning Ahead airs Wednesday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. Janet and Phil will be joined by guests who will discuss what we do when we get older and how to assist our parents with their needs. So tune in Wednesdays at 4.30 p.m. for 50-plus Planning Ahead on your home for local news, talk, sports, and entertainment. WCHE 1520 AM. 
for no-nonsense news talk, check out the Raphael Report weekdays at 1 o'clock. WCHE News Director Mike Raphael hosts the hardest-hitting hour in talk radio. Mike puts the heat on the top newsmakers with fast-paced, probing interviews. If it's in the news, it's on the Raphael Report. Tune in at 1 o'clock weekdays for the Raphael Report right here on 1520 WCHE. John Averly. Today, my guest is Frank Bender. For lack of a better saying, with what he does, he's a uh, forensic reconstructive artist, and he has helped many, many people over the years, police departments uh, all over the world, help solve cases and also help families get final closure. Frank, um, you're, you're, when you do some of this stuff, when you when you reconstruct someone's face, are you, does it ever frighten you? Are you ever disturbed by how things are going? It's it's like it's shocking to you in any way. Well, what frightens me is uh, the way people uh, use and discard people like uh, they're human trash. You know, for drugs, for power, for money. Uh, children, the way they uh, get caught up in all this is, is a shame. That's frightening. That's more frightening than any nightmare I could possibly have. I've actually solved the case and possibly a second one through a dream that I had. Uh, little Alla Davis from Philadelphia is a perfect example. I um, did a reconstruction of her, and it was in the Daily News, and I was never quite pleased with it. Didn't know why. Okay. And I had a, a dream. You could say it was a nightmare dream, whatever. But it was a lot of being a good one. I was walking down a corridor of uh, an institution uh, in the dream, and I could tell by the tile on the walls and everything it was institutional. And at the end was a gurney, and this little black girl sat up with the cutest little uh, pigtails and most beautiful smile, and this reddish-brown color was just, oh, she just had the warmest look. And I said, that's her. And I came into my studio here on South Street, the old meat market, and it was during the gas moratorium where I had no heat, and there was icicles inside. I just purchased the building, and they wouldn't allow me to turn my gas on. So I uh, worked in the freezing cold in here and redid the reconstruction, and she was identified through what I had done. So I have to give complete credit to that, to the uh, dream that I had. And it was like five and a half years later she was identified, and I'm at the, uh, the trial, and uh, Yank came up to me in a hallway, and the detective, Ellis Ferb, that was a detective on a case in a DA, were out there with me at the time, and uh, she said, oh, I recognize a little Alice Davis from the first time I saw her on TV. And Ellis said, why didn't you come forward then? And she kind of giggled. And she said, oh, the family told me not to get involved. Hmm. So this is, again, a lot of problems with children trying to get them identified uh, you know, you have to sometimes wait till a member of the family or whatever moves away from the nucleus of the family and then comes forward or whatever. Um, 
but uh, so there's a lot of yeah. dynamics. A lot of dynamics. What it takes in order right. to identify someone. Not just your job. Just getting the people to to think appropriately. Right. Exactly. It makes it uh, that that. You know, Frank, we were saying yesterday, what human beings, you said a little while ago, what human beings do to each other is, is outright shocking. Oh, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't do this to, you know, an animal in the woods to some extent. This is, and you've seen it all. I assume you've seen some of the most horrific crimes and what's left of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, that, and it, it never sorry. leaves you, you know. Well, I was going to ask you, does that bring on any sort of uh, uh, stress that stays with you, a post-traumatic stress disorder in any way, or are you able to separate yourself from what you do? I'm able to separate, and one of the ways of doing it is I've done these watercolors throughout the years. I call them downloads, where I uh, do these watercolors to download the experience so I clean the palette, so to speak, to get on with the next case. Okay. And Drexel University uh, just showed uh, a lot of my watercolors around the work that I did in Juarez, Mexico, when I was down there trying to identify the murdered women and uh, was putting my life on the line in the sense that... Uh, they drugged the reporter and I on one trip, and I threw up and was able to continue doing my work where he was out for a day and a half. And then uh, on one trip, they blew up and killed seven people on the team that wanted me down. And uh, I went down anyway, because the AG after that even got more angry and wanted me down. And uh, my wife, I know, was and Joan, our good friend, was so worried that they couldn't sleep right at nights and everything. And I, I just felt an obligation to really, really go out of my way to try to get these women identified. Because when I would go into fast food, food restaurants in water, the older women and, and like, mothers would come up to me, not necessarily mothers that are murder victims, but mothers, and said they were praying for me and hoped that I would stay down there to help with their problem. And I just couldn't leave a situation when they felt that strongly that I could help. And I did get three IDs through it all. So to me, it was worth the risk. Uh, you know, the money wasn't great, but the, but the reward internally uh, certainly was. The satisfaction. You... What's the word I'm looking for? Do you use other methods besides reconstructing using a bus? Do you use uh, your pictures, your watercolors, uh, anything else that, that leads you to what you need to do? Uh, I just uh, use any information that's given to me, like clothing found with the body, uh, rings, belt size, things like that. Try to get a feel of what the person was like, were they overweight, you know, you can tell that by a belt and the markings on the belt and things like that. And then develop a personality uh, from what I find as evidence and when I'm doing fugitives, I get into their eating habits, drinking habits, hereditary factors, family photographs, things like that, see how they age and uh, health condition, things like that. I want to know the person better than I know some of my own family members, and uh, once I, I know them that well, then I let my fingers do the walking, so to speak, and uh, finish the artwork. 
you know, that's amazing that you're able to separate yourself from that. And, and I know you live in your studio uh, in the back, and, and I saw all, all the things around your studio yesterday. Yeah, I guess the next question would be, do you ever have any of the people that you've saved or that you have reconstructed that haven't, you know, been been identified yet? Do they come to you in your dreams? Do they do they say thank you, or is there anything that happens? Uh, it's interesting you bring that up. I I uh, in my dreams over the years, the uh, people uh, that come to me in my dreams protect me. Like I'll have people chasing me, and they'll intervene and uh, protect me. Uh, so, in that sense, it's very comforting, and uh, yeah, I feel yeah. there definitely is uh, something out there. Ever ask yourself why? Why you? To have well, such a gift? yeah, I feel that we all have a gift, and like you have a gift with interviewing people, <laughs> and I have this gift. If we all use our gift in a positive way then we keep the uh, wheels of nature running smoothly in a positive way. So I think it's important for us to utilize our gifts in a good way and uh, not necessarily let monetary rewards rule, but let the internal rewards uh, rule. I mean, let's face it, we have to make money to live to pay the gas, the electric, or our anxiety would be so high we couldn't do our use our gift, but, you know, you got to keep that balance, and that's what nature does. Nature keeps it balanced. That's what we have to do. Interesting. So you're part, so you feel very much a part of nature, which allows you to do what you do. I mean, that's a special thing. Have you ever met any other people who do what you do? Oh, I'm sure there's quite a few. I know some, I don't pay attention to what, what who they are or what they're doing, um, but uh, I do know some personally because uh, I'm so busy doing so many different things. I was doing commercial photography, uh, doing cultural commissions. Uh, Joan and I were making molds off of the outside of buildings to support my art habit. I worked on tugboats. I worked for Tour Camera down at Pier 40 in Philadelphia, diving to assess the damage at the bottom of the boats, see if a regular commercial diver was worthy to bring in on the job, and I also heaved lines and worked on the engines, whatever it took to, you know, support my art habit. Uh, I understand that. Yeah, that's your love, that's your passion, so whatever it takes to keep the passion alive, you'll do. Right. I remember the first time I worked on a tugboat, uh, it was taking a septic tank out, and everything was running all over me. I had a new pair of jeans on, and I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe that this is what i got to do to support my art habit. But guess what? i got some of my finest, I feel, watercolors out of that experience. Um, you know, as I said, my downloads, you know. That's incredible just to take anything and everything and turn it into your art. I, I, I wish more people were able to do that, as you were just saying. Let's jump forward a little bit here. Now, you end up on America's Most Wanted. And the show began, I think, in 1987 or 86 on the Fox Network, which, is a, which was a fledging network at the time. How did they bring you in? I mean, did they, how did they learn about what you were capable of doing? Well, I was working with the Marshall Service Violent Fugitive Task Force looking for Hans Vorhauer and Robert Noss. And the original producer, Michael Linder of America's Most Wanted before Lance Heflin, he... Uh, came up with this idea to have this show on Fox 
and he wanted to produce a couple pilots, and he wanted to know if we, being the marshal service and the deputies, which I was not a deputy, I was brought in privately, uh, would mind doing the acting for the North Warhauer segment because they didn't have a budget. It wasn't a show at that point. They just wanted to pitch it. So we were actually on the second segment of America's Most Wanted because uh, they bought the idea and uh, I played the role of Hans Warhauer and uh, it was very interesting. I spent a day in greater for prison and prison clothes and all that. <laughs> <laughs> that had to be an experience with greater for prison. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, one of my friends that I grew up with from 7th and Allegheny was in there at the time. And <laughs> so I grew up in North Philly and used to hop freight trains and, uh, you know, I had a... I had a good old time going through the old factories, and my friend Richie Hedick and Benny Benfeld and Bob McDougal, we all hung around together, and you know, we, we never got into any trouble, but, you know, uh, we knew all these people, uh, part of the uh, K&A gang and everything, and uh, I always liked growing up there. I thought it was a great neighborhood, uh, blue collar neighborhood and uh, you know the people uh, you know they were rough but they there was something about them there was a quality about them I still miss from from that area you know I can understand that you grow up and Philly's a blue collar town you know you got that rough and tumble image but basically I think deep down inside we uh, we love each other I, I really believe that oh yeah oh yeah I really believe that. Now, how many busts did you do for America's Most Wanted? I'm not sure. I Maybe five, six. I never keep a, a, a tally on how many I do or what I do because I do so many different things. And uh, I just go with the flow. <laughs> That works. Especially <laughs> the kind of job you're doing. I guess you got to go with the flow. Well, never liked math, so I never did the counting. <laughs> okay. Now, let's let's kind of take – well, first I want to take a break here because I don't want to get uh, ahead of myself. You've been listening to, you are listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today my guest is Frank Bender. He is a forensic reconstruction artist. Back in a few moments. How many of you love to read? That's great, because there's a new show on WCHE called The Avid Reader, hosted by Sam Hankin. Mr. Hankin owns the Wellington Square Bookshop in Exton, and it's been named the best independent bookstore by the Mainline Today editors, featured on the cover of Chester County Life magazine, a featured article in the Daily Local News, and Sam Hankin has one of the most breathtaking bookstores in all of Chester County. Well, fortunately for all of us avid readers, Sam Sam Hankin will be reviewing some of the best-selling books and authors during his show on Mondays at 4.30, right here on 1520 WCAT Radio. So tune in and call in Mondays at 4.30 for the Avid Reader Show, hosted by the owner and operator of the Wellington Square Bookshop, Sam Hankin. Every 28 seconds, a car in the U.S. is stolen. Don't become the next victim. In times like these, a little extra precaution can go a long way. 
Never leave your keys in the ignition. Always lock doors and keep windows closed. Equip your car with an alarm or other theft deterrent device. If you become a victim of auto theft, report it immediately to your local law enforcement agency. To learn more about protecting yourself from auto theft, visit ncpc.org. A message from the U.S. Department of Justice, National Crime Prevention Council, and the Ad Council. Did you know your lender may be required to modify your mortgage? I'm attorney Matt Inglet with KEL Attorneys. My law firm represents thousands of people faced with the possibility of losing their home to foreclosure. If you are struggling to make your mortgage payment, you may qualify for the government-funded mortgage modification program known as HAMP. If you do qualify and your lender is participating, then your lender must modify your mortgage. Call now to learn more. 800-428-1570. That's 800-428-1570. You don't need to lose your home to foreclosure. Call KEL Attorneys now. Learn if your lender is required to modify your mortgage to something you can afford. Call right now at 800-428-1570. 800-428-1570. Again, 800-428-1570. If there was an emergency when your family had enough water and non-perishable food to last three days, we asked families across the country. Here are some of their answers. We usually eat fresh food, deli. In the pantry, and canned tomatoes. Uh, really not survival food, tomato paste. The brand of dog food that I do purchase are edible by humans. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to ready.gov. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Frank Bender, a forensic reconstructive artist. Basically, and anyone who's just tuning in on this, he was able to build busts of people to help recreate who they are now or who they might be in the future. They're able to do it with criminals as well with people who might be missing or with people who just might kind of like faded away and no one knows where they are. Frank, when we left, you were talking about America's Most Wanted and how we just got, you know, how you got involved in that. Let's go to your biggest biggest work, the, the biggest case you ever solved, uh, John Walsh called it, I think, one of the most incredible piece of detective work he had ever seen, uh, the John List case. Um, I'm going to kind of... I'm going to kind of bring it out what it was. John List was an accountant over in New Jersey. I think, I can't remember exactly what area, but he was very, very formal kind of person, very, uh, very rigid, uh, very strict. He was having some financial problems, and instead of dealing with them on a normal level, he went home and he basically killed his entire family. Uh, he was so meticulous, he rolled them up in carpet, uh, basically took care of them. He, he made sure that they were well taken care of in depth. About 20 years later, he's featured on America's Most Wanted, and Frank comes in. And Frank, take it from there. Well, uh, I got a call from Mike Linder, again, the original producer of America's Most Wanted, and he wanted me to come down to uh, the headquarters of AMW, and I went down there, and he said, Frank, the FBI wants us to air this old case. It's 18 years old. And uh, we would, we're kind of reluctant because we don't air cases that old. But if you can tell me that 
you feel that the work you do will get them caught, then I, I want you to do a bust or whatever your magic you can do to uh, try to get them identified. I said, well, Mike, I, I can't guarantee that what I do is going to get them caught, but I do know that what I do will look like them. He said, well, that's good enough for me. So he told the Bureau, and I did the reconstruction, and uh, they put it on AMW, and 11 days later, he was caught through the help of my work. Um, but how did you know, Frank? I mean, how did you... I mean, did, I assume they had pictures of them. I, I assume they gave you, you know, as much information a, as they could. Were you just about positive that this was this was the, the man that you were reconstructing? Oh, when I was done, but it, it, it's good you asked that question about the information they gave. I got very little information because they knew very little about them, huh. other than the accountant bit and everything. And I only got frontal and uh, views and three uh, court, three. Slightly three-quarter view. I never got a, a profile view of them or anything. And uh, because I was a commercial photographer and an artist, and used to seeing how light and shadow work together as far as depth goes, I was able to create the profile and everything. Uh, so when they showed the bus to neighbors, they said, yeah, that's him. They felt that they were very secure with it and put the images out there. And uh, 11 days later, he was caught. And as far as the glasses go, people say, well, how did you know what kind of glasses he had? Well, uh, again, harmony of form. I did it with the Linda Keys case from a skull to a face. Uh, there, were, there was one lens found with the body, and that was a girl's skeletal remains found in the hilltop in Sladington, Pennsylvania. Hmm. And... Uh, Bob Gurkin was the detective one at who was just recently head of uh, security at Albright College, since moved on to another area. But uh, I did the case to him, and he said, Frank, all you had was that one lens, and you were able to pick the perfect frames. How did you do it? And I said, again, harmony of form. Uh, the same way I did it with John List. Uh, I looked at his face and I said, he's going to change the type of frames that he had. He's going to uh, it'll be thicker, make him look more authoritative and all that. And uh, I, was, I was right. I mean, laws of nature follow through everything. I mean, you go to a hairdresser. Why do you go to a hairdresser? You get your hair to go with your face and all and enhance it or a suit you buy or anything else. It's that harmony. And you do the same thing with physical adornments like glasses and suits and everything else. Interesting. Now, since we met yesterday, am I going to grow old and look good? Did you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you'll be fine. You're you'll sure? Fine. You're sure? <laughs> I mean, you're, you kept yourself in good shape when you were in the military. And I think the level you were at, very physical and everything, you uh, are going to you're going to say that way, like a Marine, once a Marine, always a Marine. I never forget my uncle was a Marine, and when he died, he fought in the Second World War, Korean, two tours, two tours of Vietnam. When he died, he was still a wedge. Well, you, you were in at the same level, like a very high level of physical uh, capability. I, so still try, I still try to keep myself, if you saw me, I still try to keep myself in that top shape. I, I feel pretty proud of that. Let's... Um, what is your most satisfying case? What, what has made you feel the best for what you do? 
the most satisfying case is uh, hard to say. I would say my work in Juarez, Mexico, because I really, really put my life on the line uh, in that whole project. And uh, it made me feel good that I could make the people in, in Mexico feel good. And the hardworking people, very religious. They bless themselves every time they ride by a church. And it's a shame that they have to be so suppressed by the cartels down there. And uh, I would really love to see us as the United States uh, bordering Mexico really go all out and try to help those people as much as we can. A lot of them don't even want to be over here. They want to be back in their own country. They love their country. It's a beautiful country, but they're in fear of their life. They can't get work. I mean, it's the cartels that are holding up the whole show of progress. What was your hardest, uh, most moving case that you had to handle? Uh, it's always children. Okay. Um, little Al Davis, uh, little kid down on Lawrence Street, Daryl, the boy in a bag. Um, any of those little children, they're the most disturbing, you know. How could somebody, you know, do these horrendous things to children is beyond me. And the child abuse cases in the Catholic Church and on and on it goes, it just really burns me up. I think it's a control thing. I think people are just basically sick and they want to be in control of something. And that's one of the easiest things because they overpower the child with their physical, uh, what they have physically. It's, you said, a disturbing best way of putting it. Move on a little bit here. Um, VDOC Society. Why don't you explain what the VDOC Society is, how you're involved, because you're the co one of the co-founders, and uh, give us uh, maybe one or two of the cases that you guys have handled over the years. Well, uh yeah, one of the co-founders, I was frustrated with the fact that I was doing these reconstructions and had to deal with the bureaucracy that seemed to take forever. And I said to Bill Fleischer, when we have lunch once a week, let's form an organization like the Dirty Dozen where we just go in there and get the job done. And he laughed and said, well, we really need the information and the police to work with us. And uh, I agreed with him. So we, uh, I met this guy, Richard Waller, who's a criminal psychologist, and uh, we were having lunch one day, day by day, at 21st and uh, Sansom Street in Philadelphia. And that's where we decided to start this organization, and Bill Fleischer named it the VDOC Society. And what we do is we take on cold case homicides and bring in experts to work pro bono over lunch and now we're meeting at the Union League in Philadelphia third Thursday of every month. And we brainstorm the case and uh, try to help the police solve their own. We don't take over. We give them the best information that we can give them and help them solve the case. Our job is not to solve and say, oh, look what we did, look what we did. Our job is to give them the information. And, it's, and they can say, look what we did, look what we did. How many people do you have a part of the society now there, Frank? I know a lot of them are ex-cops. Uh, obviously, you're uh, an ex-forensics expert. Uh, how many are part of the group? Oh, there's 80, uh, 87 members. Wow. At the uh, age that VDOC lived. And then we have associate members. And uh, there's quite a, quite a few. I mean, our 
uh, tables are full at the VDOC meeting, you know. You've got to book way in advance to, to get a seat now. It's growing, and uh, it's a good sign. Real quick, Frank, before we roll into the uh, into the break here, what is what is uh, VDOC mean? I can't remember. I know it. I think it was a gentleman over in France, or I could be completely incorrect there. Uh, yeah, uh, Francois Eugene VDOC was uh, a criminal in France, okay. and uh, but he knew all the criminals. He knew their activity, their ways, and everything, and their names. And when the uh, Queen's jewels were stolen, he. Uh, uh, they made a deal with him. He, if he could get the jewels back, he would be pardoned. He was in prison for, uh, uh, well, what was that? He was in prison for a couple things. This was uh, over a woman, I believe. But anyway. Always uh, is. <laughs> always is, yeah. So they pardoned him after he um, solved the case and got the jewels back, and he formed the world's first private detective agency. Uh, Indelible ink and oh, all kinds of things. He, he was just brilliant, and he believed that if he hired criminals and paid them a fair salary, they would never turn back to life of crime. But they're the ones that knew the criminals the best. And uh, I mean, I find that true when I work with police, like ones like that grew up in tough areas, Brooklyn, New York, or up North Philly or someplace. You know, they they know the streets. They're street smart and they're they make the best police and detectives i feel excellent excellent we're gonna get we are uh, gonna take a break here right now we're talking to frank bender he is a uh, forensic reconstructive artist i'm your host john aberly back in a few moments I'm Perry Ritchie from Advent Nutrition, and I'm inviting you to listen to WCHE's premier nutritional information show, Mission Nutrition. Tune in every Tuesday afternoon from 4 to 4.30. I'll be discussing the most current research findings and therapies available in all areas of health, from how to lose weight and keep it off to managing a host of other medical conditions, from insulin resistance to heart disease, fibromyalgia to osteoporosis, autoimmune disease, menopause, cancer support, and more. So please join me. I'll introduce you to special guests, great programs, and an open line every week so you can call in and ask questions to get and keep you feeling fit, happy, and healthy. So tune in every Tuesday from 4 to 4.30, right here on 1520 AM WCHE Westchester. Remember, your health is your responsibility, so let's take charge of it together. Matt Lombardo, passionate, opinionated, and the voice of the Philadelphia fans. The expectations have never, ever been higher for this franchise, and you can make the argument that there haven't been this high of expectations or these high of hopes for any team in Philadelphia sports history in the last 25 years and maybe ever. In my mind, this is a World Series or bust season. Catch the Matt Lombardo Show weekdays at 2 on 1520 WCHE. 
For a lighthearted look at issues affecting seniors, the baby boom generation, and their families, including finances, care, the law, and decisions the over 50 generation face every day, tune in to WCHE's 50 Plus Planning Ahead. The show is co-hosted by elder law attorney Janet Colleton and Phil McFadden, co-owner of Homestead Senior Services. 50 Plus Planning Ahead airs Wednesday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. Janet and Phil will be joined by guests who will discuss what we do when we get older and how to assist our parents with their needs. So tune in Wednesdays at 4.30 p.m. for 50 Plus Planning Ahead on your home for local news, talk, sports, and entertainment. WCHE 1520 AM. For no-nonsense news talk, check out the Raphael Report weekdays at 1 o'clock. WCHE News Director Mike Raphael hosts the hardest-hitting hour in talk radio. Mike puts the heat on the top newsmakers with fast-paced, probing interviews. If it's in the news, it's on the Raphael Report. Tune in at 1 o'clock weekdays for the Raphael Report right here on 1520 WCHE. Back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Frank Bender. He is a forensic, I, came, I forgot what I was going to say now, a forensics reconstructive artist. Uh, he, he's done incredible things with his life. What, what Frank's been able to accomplish is a gift, being able to reconstruct uh, people's faces and heads and so forth, to give closure to family members, to help uh, identify and bring in criminals. Uh, Frank, I, I know you're a soft-spoken person, and, and I know that uh, you look at what you do, again, as a gift, and, and you're blessed to do it. You have an 85% success rate. How does that make you feel? I mean, how do you feel every day when you get up? Uh, it makes me feel good that I was able to help these people, but unfortunately with uh, my cancer that I got while I was uh, in the military from asbestos keeps me from working and doing more because of what I got is service-connected. And uh, But at this point in my life with my cancer, the way it's consumed me, I really couldn't do it anyway. I'm not physically... Uh, capable. Unfortunately, I wanted to wring some more out in my life, but it was just not possible, unfortunately. You know, I think, I'm surprised you would think that the military would make an exception to what the rule is when it's full benefits uh, for disability. Well, even if they did, it would have been hard because, you know, I was thinking about that last night, and I I really can't work. You know, my hands are shaky, and, uh, you know, with the medication, I... Uh, I seem to always get the side effects. <laughs> we were talking about that yesterday. At lunch. Oh, yeah, man, yeah. side effects are murder, and it takes me forever to finish one. So I think now that I'm not taking any more medication, I might be better off. When was the last one you did, Frank? When was the last bust you did? The last one I did was uh, last, uh, not this September, the September before, I believe it was, or uh August, something like that. August, I think I received a check or something like that for one. But it was back then. Interesting. Now, I I saw, I I read an article, 
and I think one of the one of the last ones, or one of the close to the last ones, was a child, I believe, down in North Carolina. Uh, right. Hispanic, uh, Caucasian, Hispanic, uh, maybe eight to ten, somewhere around there. Yeah, I did him back then, and there may be an ID coming up, but. Uh I'm not at liberty to discuss any of that right now. Understandable. So I assume a lot of your work uh, still is used and floating around for uh, unsolved cases. Oh, yeah, and I'm hoping that uh, people will come forward because, you know, it's like I have cancer. My wife had cancer. She passed. I was taking care of her. And it's an ugly thing. It's an ugly disease. Well, so are these crimes. And when people turn in the the doers, we're taking out a piece of cancer out of our society so it doesn't grow and perpetuate because a lot of these people will continue to uh, kill and, you know, it's not going to stop till you stop them. How, and you've been around this a lot, obviously, you know, with VDOC and the police and everything else. How dedicated are they to solving uh, cold case uh, uh, criminals and cold case cases and so forth? Well, with budget cuts and everything, it's tougher now, tougher than ever. And that's why VDOC is such a good thing to have, because we do a pro bono. Uh, when a lot of these law enforcement can't afford these top experts, we bring them in. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's really tough. Law enforcement does not have it easy now. No, they don't. With everything being cut and uh, the fact, that it, which blows me away, people don't respect them. Uh, you know, it, it's not an easy job what they do, uh, especially when they're working homicide. And, uh, right. and you know, I, I wouldn't. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about it last night when I was when I was at home and I was having uh, watching the Flyers game. I. I couldn't and still can't imagine doing what you do. Just, it's, freaky's not the word that I mean. It's just, I don't have that kind of skill, and i got to believe 99.9% .9 of the world doesn't have what you do. And, and again, I can't use the word gift more, you know, more often. You know, I can't use it enough. Now, real quick, I kind of, kind of missed something here during the interview process, and maybe we touched on it, but not enough where I, I want a little bit more in depth. What is the process for you when you begin to find, to start looking to reconstruct someone? What's, what's the step-by-step -step process? Well, uh, I get the skull sent to me, and then I take good photographs of it from every angle with a long lens so it won't distort the image, which, of course, I learned when I was doing photography. And then I study the skull, the forms, the asymmetry. Uh, what is it telling me? And the photographs of where the body was found, the clothing, everything, and... Uh, I study it, study it, study it with the fugitives. I do that with their lifestyle, et cetera, and old family photographs and prison photographs or whatever. And I study, study, study. And then I know the person. It's in my head. The whole image is there. And I just so I just let my fingers do the walk. And I just, the clay at that point, just, and my fingers kind of take over. Um, and the first thing I do is start putting clay over the skull and I use the facial tissue thickness marks just as a foundation but I depart from them because they're an average and each person is an individual and it's important that we see everybody as an individual not an average and that's why it bothers me that uh, people use these facial tissue thickness charts and worry about a half a millimeter when the most important thing is what 
is the skull saying? What are the forms saying? Make it the individual that they are. And then I make a mold over that, a synthetic rubber mold. And then into that, I pour a hard FGR, which is a hard form of gypsum reinforced with fiberglass and sand it and paint it and make it look as detailed as possible. And the reason I want to make it as detailed as possible is so the public can relate to reality easier than something abstracted. And uh, it's easier for them to relate to a well-detailed bust. I did a bust real fast in two hours. I had to while my wife was at ballet class because he said, how fast can you do this? I said, well, I have to do it in two and a half hours because i got to pick my wife up from ballet class. <laughs> and, yeah. and they said, yeah, it looks like our uncle. Uh, uh, they, they knew it was, but he said he didn't have those scales all over his face because they didn't have time to smooth it out. Uh, but uh, it shows how the public needs things real. Yeah, I agree with that. I yeah. agree with that. Frank, I, we're going to kind of wrap it up here. And, and first, what I want to say is thank you again. Uh, I think you're a true hero to um, to the world uh, in large. I really believe that. And I'm sorry again for having to bail out during lunch at the last possible moment. Uh, if you're okay with this, I'd like to give you a call later next week. Come down then have lunch and get the baseball done. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I, I feel that uh, we got a bond. We're friends here. And, you know, I... Uh, yeah, just come on down. I like to get together with you, and you did some marvelous things in your life too that I appreciate. <laughs> so uh, mutual admiration society here. I, Frank, I appreciate it. I definitely give you a call this week. We've been listening. You are listening to Life Unedited today. My host has been Frank Bender, a uh, forensic reconstructive artist who's done incredible things, help catch criminals, help families uh, give closure to people who might have who've been been passed away, have been killed, what have you. Frank, thanks again, and I'll talk to you this week. Oh, you're welcome, and everybody have a good weekend.